Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. We, for the month of December, started going through the Gospel of John and told the Christmas story through his lens. And today we are officially um, kind of kicking off our series um, called Life to the Full. John's Gospel is a really unique gospel. And if you're new to the scriptures, the gospel is a biography of Jesus' life, where gospel means good news. And there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called the synoptic gospels, and they tell a similar story, similar outline with, with definitely some distinctives. And John is written a little bit later. John is one of the followers, disciples, apprentices of Jesus, and he writes in a very unique way, um, not like the other gospel writers. And so studying his book is going to be really, uh, I'm really excited about to dive into why did John write his biography of the life of Jesus the way he did. And one of the major themes, if you were to scan in the whole book, what you'll see is almost 50 times is this word coming up again and again, this word life. And most often, this word life is the Greek word zoe, which means abundant or eternal quality of life, God's life. And it's not the only Greek word used for life. Uh, the word suke, where we get our word psychology, would be described like existence, your breathing, your living, your suke. And then there's bios, which is bio, where we get our word biology. And every time... Uh, suke, or psycho- that word we get psychology from, is used. It's, it's used in the phrase, give up this. Give up your suke, this, this sense of existence that the world has kind of classified so that you can receive another kind of life, which is zoe life. And John ends his gospel summarizing the entire point of his writing. I'm not just, I'm just coming up with a theory here. John actually tells us explicitly why he wrote his gospel the way he did. So if you go to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, it says this, Jesus performed many other signs, and we'll talk about it in a second, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Which always makes me a little bummed, right? I'm just like, ah, that would have been nice to know a little bit more. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this is, for John, the the whole mission of his writing is that through his writing, you would believe and that belief would produce life. Zoe, abundant, fulfilled God quality of life brimming up within you to go spill over to the world that's around you. And so we see these, these different moments in the ministry of Jesus when he says, like in John 10, he says, hey, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come. The incarnation, the reason I came is that you may have life and life abundantly or life to the full. And so that's going to be our kind of trajectory over the next few weeks and months is to discover what is this kind of life that he's talking about? How do we accomplish this? And for John, this is established through and is always connected through this other word that's used almost a hundred times in his gospel. And this is word belief, that belief leads to life. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we talked about how belief is not intellectual agreement, like, oh, I agree that exists. 
belief, especially in kind of the ancient Near Eastern Jewish mindset, was an active word of trust. To believe would you would place your weight upon something, and if it fell, you fell. It was, it was really better translated, that act of trust, than how we would understand belief. But he says within that type of belief, that postuyo belief is the Greek word, it produces life. But he doesn't just tell us to believe in, in anything. He gives us a very specific strategy to do this. You see, when John wrote, he wrote seven signs in his book, and then there's also seven statements that Jesus makes. Each one of these signs or miracles gives us a revelation or a picture of who God is. Today, we'll talk about the first one. And then there are these seven statements that are called the I am statements. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, you're new to the God of the Bible, the first time we get his name is when God shows up and interacts with this guy named Moses, and he says that his name is I am who I am. So John records these seven statements of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, um, I am, and he goes on, and every one of these statements, again, reveals a part of it. And for him, he's like, there are many other signs, but these were written that you may believe and that by believing you may have what? Life. So if, just to kind of let you know, as we look at the next few months, my prayer is that this would be a church that is just surging with abundant Zoe, God quality kind of life because we have continued step by step to place our trust and our faith in who Jesus is. And so we're gonna be beginning with the first one. And the first one uh, ends up in chapter two. And chapters two, three, and four of John are interesting because they all fall under this umbrella. The theme of this first uh, kind of four chapters of John is, is this. The old is gone, the new has come, which is a phrase we get from Paul's writings. And so what we'll talk about today is how the old purification laws have been replaced by new wine. Later on in chapter two, we see that the temple is replaced by a resurrected Lord. The third chapter, we see an exposition on what new life is. In the fourth chapter, we see God's people are not sustained by Jacob's well, but by living water. And lastly, that worship is no longer about a place, but about a person. I, and it makes me so excited to think that as we start the series, this is the theme John's wanting us to get. The old is gone, the new has come. And I just can't think about what a more important theme for us as human beings to hear again and again and again. The old is gone, the new has come. And for us to begin to grasp what that looks like. But in order to do that, we have to begin at the beginning. We have to say, well, what's the first sign? What's the first thing that John wanted us to capture? And this happens to be chronologically the very first miracle that Jesus ever performs. And we find ourselves in John chapter two here about a story about a wedding. Anyone love Weddings here, right? I mean, what's not to love about weddings, right? You show up to a beautiful venue, everyone's dressed up, someone else is paying for it. You get to eat their food, dance, and not even clean up. I mean, like, we love going to weddings. This year, we got to go to our first destination wedding in Cabo. I really love destination weddings. <laughs> we just got offered to do a destination wedding, like, to, to officiate one in Kauai. So I'm like, this is my new side hustle. So if you're thinking about, like, going off and getting married to someone, just let us know, specifically if it's in Italy, you know, like Iceland, or just some, I'll give you a list. But, <laughs> I, but I love weddings. I love going, and, and more than just the, just the fun and the aesthetic of it, there's something about it that always draws me and anchors me to this reality of what this is all about. This is about this love 
that is so strong that it's built within the confines of covenant. And there's never a wedding that I go to or perform that I'm not moved. And I think that this is Jesus opening up his signs and wonders at a wedding uh, was no accident. So turn with me in John chapter two, and let's read this first sign that John gives us of who this Jesus of Nazareth is. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that, he had been, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper one after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, great party trick, by the way, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. So we're gonna be looking at this um, this interaction at three different levels. Uh, The first one is we're going to be taking a close-up view of what's happening here. What's the context? What's taking place there? What did they they have felt? What questions would they have asked? And then we're gonna kind of back up a little bit. And then we're gonna be looking at some of the language that's used around ceremony and ritual And then we're going to take an even larger step back and ask what's happening here at kind of a cosmic scale that Jesus is trying to tell us, what story is being told. So our three points this morning is to look at the celebratory implications, the ceremonial implications, and then the cosmic implications. So let's begin close up. Let's begin to just start asking asking the question, what's happening here? If we were to, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers says, smell the text, right? What's actually taking place here? Well, this takes place in a, in a little town called Cana. Cana is still around today. I actually was just there in September, and I was excited to go to Cana because I just had a niece that was born named Cana after this miracle. And so I, I was there. I was excited to see what it is, and this town is about probably about a three or four hour walk southwest of where Nazareth was, um, southwest of the Sea of Galilee, close enough that they would have known some family there. Jesus is not just a guest because he's popular at this point. He's a guest because his mom's there. It's kind of a family friend kind of thing. And up to this point, Jesus has just recruited these five guys we know from chapter one. He doesn't have 12 disciples yet. He only has five. And part of, at the very beginning of this journey, they're like, hey, follow me, follow me. And he invites these five guys to start following him around. And then his mom's like, hey, we have the wedding this weekend. He's like, oh, right, wedding. So they show up at this wedding. And so his, his new apprentices following this new rabbi, they start following around and find themselves at this wedding. Now, Jewish weddings are amazing. They know how to do this right. They party on average from seven to 14 days. Uh, the entire neighborhood would shut down. And you would go, and the entire team, this is an open bar, right, for seven days uh, minimum. This is all you can eat for seven days minimum. And this takes place at the synagogue. 
Uh, the synagogue, don't think of it as a church, think of it as like a community center. And this community center would just be, would you just party at from the sun up to sundown, and then the next day you would do it again. And each day had just kind of different parts. And on the third day, it says they got married. And the reason why they got married on the third day, and to this day, Jewish people get married on third day, which is a Tuesday, interestingly enough. And they get married on Tuesdays because in the creation story, when it gets to the third day, it's the only day that God says it was good twice. So according to Jewish tradition and belief, is that Tuesdays carry a double blessing. So if you get married on a Tuesday, you have the extra blessing of God on it. And so to this day, if you go to the temple um, in Jerusalem, you will see that's, that's wedding day is Tuesdays. And so here's this Tuesday. They're there, they're celebrating. And somewhere early on in this moment, they run out of wine. Now, that's a problem if it's like here. It's kind of like the bummer part, like, okay, bar's closed, like or whatever, like, I guess we gotta, you know, I guess we're gonna just go dance now or whatever. Well, here, it was the groom's job after he's betrothed to his wife to go away for a year, build his house, save his money because it was the groom's job to pay for a week's worth of wine and food for all of his guests. So for him to have run out of wine would have brought tremendous shame upon him and his family. One commentator calls this a social catastrophe. So don't just think like, oh, minor problem here. This, this would, and if, if, again, if Jesus' family is invited here, this is a family friend, someone they're close to. They travel to go be it. And Mary in this moment is realizing this is, this is a disaster this is going to heap shame on this man and his new wife and their family. And so he goes to Jesus. Now, what's interesting is up to this point, we, um, G- Joseph was a part of the birth story, and then we kind of don't hear from him. Uh, many people assume that at some point along he passed away, which is much more common back then without the lack of access to medical care. And so Jesus, being the firstborn son, would have been the head of the house at that time. So for Mary to come to Jesus wasn't so much like, hey, go do a miracle, as much as it would have been like, can you help with this? You're the head of the house. What do we do? And Jesus' response to her is one that kind of, in our culture, makes us cringe a little bit. You should just never say this if you're taking notes. And he just goes, woman? My mom, who's here, she's five foot one. I would never dare say that to her. I would just be too afraid to see what would happen. And so we read that, and we're like, oh, man, he must be really upset. What's interesting, though, is the word woman is not a derogatory term in the original language. A matter of fact, it's the t- same term he gives to his mother when he's on the cross. And, he said, and when he's talking to John, he says, woman, behold your son. So in, in no way is he being derogatory, but... The, the rest of the sentence is a slight rebuke. And the rebuke is not in the term woman. The rebuke is, it's not my time yet. That word time, aura, is used nine times in John's gospel. The first three are, are saying, it's not my time. And the last six are saying, it's now my time. And so this is where John is kind of letting us into Jesus' frustration here. He says, hey, like, the, I, I'm... You know, I'm, I, I'm gathering my disciples. I haven't kind of launched into this new thing yet. It's not my time yet. But it, interestingly enough, Mary doesn't take that as like, okay, you're right. She looks at the servant and says, do whatever he says. You can almost imagine a little bit of a wink and a nod there. Like, it's not my time, but okay, mom. <laughs> you know, like, we'll, we'll do something about this. 
And so Mary's command, which is actually the only command we ever see Mary give, would um, not that that bears too much weight, is the, I think these really precious words, do whatever he says. And that's something that I've always just kind of stuck with me. And, and so these servants do exactly that. They do what he says and they go and they fill, they, they look and there is these six large jars, 20 or 30 gallons full. I think there's a picture of them. I don't know if we ever showed it. Um, this is a picture of what like, that jar would have looked like. It's interesting, uh, in, the, in the town of Cana, hundreds of years ago, a church showed up there because of its biblical implications. And the man who's leading up the excavation prayed and said, I feel like we should build the church right here. So they started to excavate and dig, and what they found was a first century synagogue. Um, and true story, so they dug all around it, and within that first century synagogue, where the wedding would have been, they found water purification jars. So they excavated it. One of them is now in a museum in Germany. You can actually go and see uh, what could have been the water purification jar that Jesus used to turn water into wine. Um, and so it's and the reason I just bring that up is, again, whenever we can draw that our faith is rooted in historical truths, I think it just bolsters up our sense like this isn't something we just made up, right? There is truth that we can stand on in the scriptures. And so we have this, we have this kind of space where they now fill the water to the brim, and Mary um, gives this command And then somewhere along the line, from filling up the water to the master of the banquet tasting, and it has turned into wine. There's a lot of debate as far as when that happens. Um, But most people agree it was in the handing or in the process of giving in the water. Um, C.J. Cruz, who's a commentator, says this. The evangelist adds, the evangelist meaning John, the author, that he did not realize where it had come from through the servants who had drawn the water knew. By saying the servants who had drawn the water knew, the evangelist seemed to suggest that when what they drew from the stone jars was only water. If this was the case, the miracle occurred as they carried what they had drawn to the master of the banquet. The obedience of the servants and their faith in Jesus then played an important part in this miracle. And they go, give him the, the, the cup or whatever. They try it. You know, he rejoices. Wow, you saved the best for last. And the guy's like, I did. <laughs> of course I did. Um, and, and at the end of it, I don't know about you. Sometimes I'm like, weird story. Like, what's the point? And like I said, we're going to look at this at three different angles. But the first angle that I want us, that shouldn't get beyond us, is the very first setting we see the glory of Jesus revealed is within the context of feasting and friends. And the reason I, ha- I, wanna, I want us to draw to that observation, or draw that observation, is because for me, and maybe, it was, maybe it's just me, but so much is I disassociate my faith with things like feasting and friends and partying. Like these are two separate things. I have my quiet time in the morning and then I'll go do this. But what we see here is we, we are introduced to this Messiah who comes and is a part of the feast. He invites his apprentices, come feast with us. Come be a part of this. And by the way, throughout the gospels, what do we see Jesus doing? Eating and drinking. 
that somehow in God's sovereign plan, he's got three years of ministry on earth, that somehow within him utilizing the best portion of his time, that a large majority of that was this, eating and drinking and feasting and being with people. And the reason I bring that up is I, I would encourage us as a church, as we look at this, again, from purely kind of close-up look, to begin to say, like, Lord, what, what would that look like for our community to begin to start incorporating that as a part of our spirituality, not something separate from it? Um, next week when we launch Open Tables, um, one of them is going to simply be a cooking open table. You go and you just feast. And some people are like, well, is there a Bible study? I'm like, no, but this is, in that specific context, that excites my heart because I'm like, there's something divine even in that space when we come and break bread and share life and stories and live life together. There is a distinction, though. The one part of this element that is unique in this story is not the feasting and the friends because isn't that what the world offers as well? But it's faith. Faith is that component that separates the two. And so the faith here, it comes from the servants drawing water to bring it to the master of the banquet. How awkward do they feel? Here, uh, wasn't thirsty. Oh, okay, sorry. Like they don't know what, they're just doing what Jesus told them to do, which by the way, if you ever sign up for that can feel incredibly awkward. But when you obey, when Jesus speaks to you and you do something, you incorporate faith, it is not separate from the abundance of feasting and friends and life and joy. It actually comes together with it. And this is the big separation is the world will try and sell us on this idea of celebration and feasting as a way to separate ourselves or escape from the world. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is for you to enjoy the goodness that I've given to you. This is a part of who I am. When you eat and drink and when friends, this isn't a separate thing from faith. As a matter of fact, this is where faith happens when you can trust me in this way. And so this is kind of like, I believe just our opening our opening point would be this idea of incorporating this idea of celebration as a part of our theology. A part of following Jesus involves us feasting with friends. I had a couple dinners this week that because I was getting ready for this message, I was keenly aware of just these spaces where I was like, man, God, you totally are present in these spaces. And I've kind of dismissed you from them. I think the Lord would want us to welcome us back in that. But this is not the only thing that's happening here. The next thing that we're exposed to here is not just this kind of a celebratory implication, but it's a ceremonial implication. Notice the verse when it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonially washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Um, if we aren't aware of the kind of the ritual and tradition behind Jewish ceremonial washing, then this verse doesn't mean much to us. Chances are, even for someone who studies the Bible, I had to do some research this week. I'm like, what does ceremonial washing look like in Jewish culture? And there's really two places for it. One is very common, and it happens when you wash your hands. If you go to Jerusalem, you go to Israel today, what you'll find is these silver or brass um, pitchers that are by sinks, and before you eat, you wash your hands. It's not just to get them clean, but it's to make you right with God to make sure that you're not doing anything that's unclean because in the Jewish um, kind of religious tradition is you cannot enter into the presence of God if you are unclean. And lots of things could make you unclean. If you were sick, if you came in contact with a dead body, if you had sinned, if all these different things. So you're constantly thinking, how do I make myself clean so I can interact with God? 
The second way that kind of Jewish ritual ceremonial washing would happen was three times a year when you'd celebrate these Jewish festivals. And what would happen is the men would go and they would purify themselves, wash, before they would go and offer these sacrifices. Because if they offered the sacrifices when they weren't clean, then the sacrifices would be rejected. And so steeped into the mindset of what makes you right with God in a Jewish worldview is those jars. It's these six jars that represent the ritual cleansing that has to take place, meaning if those jars don't exist, your relationship with God doesn't exist. If you don't follow the laws of making sure that you're clean, you're going to miss out on your ability to be in communion with God. Now, here's what's fascinating. Water was essential to having right relationship with God. Wine was forbidden in the temple. Leviticus chapter 10 says, then the Lord said to Aaron, when, by Aaron, he's addressing the entire priestly line. He says, you and your sons are not to drink wine or fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meetings or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees of the Lord has given them through Moses. So what's happening here is actually incredibly provocative. This water, this holy water, they believe that the ceramic that they use would not, uh, would not dirty the water. It's why they use that specific kind of jar. Was filled or would be filled with water that they would deem holy, that they would use so that they can step into the temple when the time came for them to do that. And they were empty in that moment. And Jesus looks over as he's about to begin his ministry and he looks at these symbols of separation. These symbols of moral religiosity, of doing that thing to get right with God. And he goes, go fill them up to the brim. And as you can imagine, as they're bringing this, these cups to the master of the banquet, these cisterns or these, these ceramic pots that used to be filled with water so people could go into the temple was now filled with wine which wasn't ever even allowed into the temple, which we're about to find out next week, plot twist, Jesus starts to address how they view the temple. And what he's saying here, he says, I'm the temple. And so with him filling the ritual ceremonial washing jars filled with wine, he's flipping the religious system on its head and he's pointing to himself. I'm going to be what's going to make you clean and right. It's not going to be what you do. It's not your works. It's not your obedience to the law. It's because I'm here and I am grace and love in the flesh. And what's here is brand new. You've never seen it before. Timothy Keller says, those who believe that they have pleased God by the quality of their devotion and moral goodness naturally feel that they are, that they and their group deserve deference and power over others. But the God of Jesus and the prophets, however, saves completely by grace. He cannot be manipulated by religious or moral performance. He can only be reached through repentance, through the giving up of power. If we are saved by sheer grace, we can only become grateful, willing servants of God for everyone around us. This is, this is a so much bigger than just like, wow, more wine. 
He's specifically using a container of moral self-righteousness to be filled with the miraculous representation of his presence. Which leads to our third view of this story, which ties it all together. It, It moves from this celebratory to the ceremonial, but this has cosmic implications. And what I mean by that is wine and weddings tell the story of the Bible. How so? Well, there's three ways. Number one, wine is a prophetic signpost in the Old Testament. It's pointing to the coming of a new kingdom. Secondly, at the Last Supper, wine is used not only as an agent in that process, but as a promise that he won't drink it again until he's with them again in paradise. And thirdly, a wedding is the final setting of God's redemption. So why did the first miracle happen at a wedding? Well, because the story ends at a wedding. Jesus is telling us and foreshadowing the conclusion of his redemptive act by introducing us to who he is in this specific setting. So let's walk through these three things. Number one, the, the wine or the, the, is a prophetic signpost. And so one of the questions we should ask when you read this, why so much wine? That's a lot of wine. You just do some simple math here. I mean, this is like, this, this party's about to get crazy. <laughs> and maybe Jesus is, but probably more like he's not so concerned with making sure everyone has enough alcohol to drink as much as he's concerned with fulfilling a prophecy that people have been hanging on to for hundreds of years. Let's read some of these prophecies that were written in a time when Israel was in bondage. Israel was enslaved and oppressed by different world powers like Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And during that time, prophet after prophet writes about this concept of new wine. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 12. It says, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain and the new wine and the oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. Joel, in chapter three, verse 18 says, in that day, which is a reference to the God's coming kingdom, in that day, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk and the ravines of Judah will run with water. Joel 3.18 says, I'm sorry, Amos 9.13 says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people of Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So think about this. In the midst of not knowing if you're going to live or die because of these world powers have come and stripped you of your right. These prophets hear these words of God that start to tell them, there will be a day that comes. There will be a kingdom that comes and renews and they will be signified. We know this kingdom has come when this new wine comes dripping from the mountains, that there will be an abundance of milk and oil and new wine. And so Jesus shows up on the scene in the midst of being under the Roman oppression and he looks at these jars and he looks at them and says, fill them to the brim. The kingdom has come. The new wine is here. This was a statement he was making that these prophecies that they were holding on to for hundreds of years, when will this return? Jesus comes up and at this wedding says, fill them to the top. This is why I came 
to bring back those who are exiled, to those who feel separate, to be brought in. And he continues on this theme of using wine as a picture for himself at the Last Supper. If you, see, if you go to Matthew 26, it says, then he, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. How amazing that wine is not only a prophetic signpost for a kingdom that's coming, but now it's a promise for all of us to remember that every time we come to the table, this can increase our appetite for the great and final feast we'll have in his redemptive kingdom. Which leads us to the final setting. Before I read this, I think it's important to point out, John, who writes this biography, this gospel, wrote another few letters and then wrote a book called Revelation. So Jesus is introduced by John through the setting of a wedding. And, G- and John's work concludes in the book of Revelation at a wedding. I don't think that was an accident. I think when the Holy Spirit was inspiring John to write this, this was intentional and purposeful to say, listen, I am the beginning and the end What's happening in that little synagogue in Cana is a picture, a small foretaste of what's about to happen for all of eternity. So John, much later on in life, as he's about to die, has his revelation from the Lord and pens it down. Listen to how he ends this story. In Revelation 19, verse six, says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This little town of Cana, in a little first century synagogue, where a groom did not plan accordingly and had a social catastrophe. Jesus looks at this moment. I'm gonna start telling the story. Fill them to the brim. New wine is here. Fill them to the brim. Be walk out in faith in the midst of this feasting and faith because what's happening here is reminding us of something else that's coming. And so for those of you who are in this room and you hear words like life to the full and there's a, there's a cynicalness in your heart because of the, the pain and the suffering you've gone through and like, what do you mean life to the full? I wanna remind you that in between this wedding and the last wedding, stood the cross. And so even if you feel like you are yourself being sacrificed in pain, feeling lost, feeling disoriented in the midst of chaos, and you are even asking the question, God, where are you? We get to look to the wedding of Cana, which points us to the wedding feast of the lamb. And the angel would say, blessed are you if you are invited. Well, who's invited? Well, it's for those 
who've responded to the invitation of grace? The answer is everyone. Everyone's invited. The, the question now is, are you going to respond? And I'm not just talking about this in, in a simple state of conversion. I'm talking about this is for everyone, if you're a Christian or not. Will you live out your longing, looking towards this hope in our hearts that even in the midst of a, a Jewish people who were so severely oppressed, Jesus comes and what happened in a small scale was telling a story of what's happening so much larger, larger. There is a feast coming. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. As they do, I wanna, I wanna give you just three thoughts to think through just to apply during your week. As you just process this and pray through this, Number one, enjoy the goodness of Jesus. Feasting, friends, faith, don't separate these things out. Just in a very simple close-up sense, enjoy the goodness of Jesus, what his presence brings. Secondly, receive the grace of Jesus. Walk out on your self-imposed religiosity, which is represented by those ceremonial washing jars. And walk in your Christ-imputed righteousness. This is, a, it's about grace. If you're here this morning and there's a sense of you like, well, I don't know if it's me, that's your signal that it is about you. Because it has nothing to do with what you can bring to the table once you realize the table's already been set. This is about receiving God's grace, this new wine instead of our own works and rituals trying to get right with him. And lastly, hope. There's not a single person in this room who cannot leave here with a sense of hope that is alive and rich. Because even when Jesus faced death, it did not end there. In his resurrection, not only was it a, a, a moment where he proved his own power, but it is a power he invited us into. And so I would just encourage you, hope in the grand feast of Jesus. Imagine the wedding feast of the Lamb. When you come to the table in the next few weeks, when you come to that table, let that, that taste of bread, the taste of the juice on your lips, let that just make you long for the promise of redemption. Cultivate healthy longing. And then lastly, this, this feast, this heavenly feast, is not something we just long for. It's something that we get to live out here as the people of God, as the covenant community of Christ. When we come and gather around a table, when you share a good meal, when you cry with someone, when you celebrate with someone, when you do this in faith, we are bringing the reality of heaven right here. This is not something we only have to long for, but in our hope, we can create as well. So would you guys stand to your feet with me? Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.